studio in South Africa. It's time for The Long and Short of It with Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and Dale Hayes. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Long and the Short of It, which, as you know by now, is a golf podcast. It is indeed. So then, what the hell are we doing talking to Sir Jeffrey Boycott today? Though? I have no idea, and I've spent the last week or so asking myself that very same question. Well, I'll tell you. Uh-huh. Sir Jeffrey Boycott is a massive golf fan, yeah. and if you're a South African, you may or may not know that Sir Jeffrey Boycott actually has a house at one of our most prestigious golf estates down in the Cape called Pearl Valley. And I believe you've got a little bit of history of them, Sai, so come on now, give us uh, give us your best, Sir Jeffrey, your, your best Yorkshireman. Oh, I'll try my best, Dill, but you know, it's not amazing. It's certainly not of caliber to Jeffrey Boycott, and I apologize, Sir Jeffrey, when you listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> so from a pure cricketing point of view, Jeffrey Boycott played 108 test matches for England. He scored over 8,000 runs at an average of just under 48. So a stellar career as an opening bat for England, but... What about his golf? Well, as you're here, Dill, Sir Jeffrey is a massive golf fan. Like I said, he's got a house at a golf estate, for goodness yeah. sake. And he's been playing golf for a very, very long time. And the story about how he got into it is actually very, very interesting. So let's not steal Sir Jeffrey's limelight. Let's jump straight into it. A little bit of a different long and the short of it today with cricketing legend and great Sir Jeffrey Boycott. The long and short of it. That's it. That's a half volley through mid arm for four. The back goes in the air, the England players come out to applaud what really has got to be a moment here of cricket history. Jeffrey Boycott, 100-100s, the place to get it in the middle of a test match against Australia on his home ground at Edinburgh. Well, so Jeff Boycott, welcome to the podcast. Just a, a precursor to our chat when I was trying to book you for this interview. Uh, we toed and froed a little bit on time and date because you had to keep an eye on the India-England series for work. So as busy as ever at 80 years old? Uh, not as busy as before. Something has to go. Uh, television's gone and radio. The company I work for, uh, Channel 5, did the brilliant highlights. And so now a show at 7 o'clock. They lost the rights to the BBC. But I write for the Daily Telegraph, special articles on the cricket. So I watch the cricket all the time. But I did anyway, because I like it. I love it. So it's it's not that difficult for me to watch. I'm not one of those players and the lots of them who play professional cricket for many years. And by the time they finish, retire or what, they've had enough. And they don't go to the cricket to watch. They just want to do other things. I'm not. I love it. So I can watch all day. I... Uh, when test matches are played in uh, January, usually at Newlands, I'm at my house in Cape Town, yeah. I go. I go for at least three days. I book in at the hotel, the vineyard, I stay with my wife, and I go with the Western Province people. I'm a honorary member. I, and I just love it. I can watch and enjoy it. I don't look at it thinking, oh, well, I could have done better. Or No, no, I really go to enjoy it. I obviously see things I like and things that maybe technical flaws that they could do better but I, I, I don't bother with that I go for enjoyment just like you would go to the cricket or you go to the cinema to watch and I'm, I'm lucky right all my life I've loved it since not like it loved it since I've been what nine I think and I suppose, you know, given the state of where the UK's at in terms of COVID you all hunkered down there so can't be anything better than just sitting back at home kicking back and watching the cricket on the telly yeah, I don't get up at uh, four o'clock in the morning, though, to watch it. <laughs> I put it on, on highlights and I record. 
I don't fancy four o'clock in the morning. No, no, it's not an appealing prospect. Like I said before we started the chat, uh, thank you for agreeing to be on our golf podcast. Ooh. And uh, I, I think, okay. and I think, yeah, let's let's bring it back to South Africa because many South Africans who listen to this podcast would may or may not know that Sir Jeffrey Boycott has a house at one of the most prestigious golf estates in South Africa, Pearl Valley. Tell us a little bit about that and, and what prompted you to to buy out here. Well, first of all. My first tour for England was to South Africa in 64-65. Played against some of your great players, Graham Pollock, friend of mine. Eddie Barlow was a friend of mine years later, not when I first started. Um, Dennis Lindsay, I loved him. Oh. I, I mean, a lot of those people were great friends of mine. And a couple still are because they're still alive. Uh, but, and I've been going back to South Africa for holidays. I used to stay in Joburg with friends, with Peter Cook, big friend of mine. We put the Rebel Tour together in 1982, was it? Yeah, 82. Um, and also, I used to go and stay with friends in Joburg, besides him, a person at uh, near Santon. And I used to practice at the Wanderers. I used to watch the cricket and so forth. So I've been on holiday many times, Cape Town as well. And so I've always fell in love with the place. I love the place. And... Uh, it was only when I got cancer of the tongue in 2002 and seemed to be getting over it. Uh, you don't know whether you're going to survive for five years to get a clear. Mm. But anyway, my friend, Graham Webster, who used to be the pro at Stellenbosch. That's right. Big friend of mine. Former, looks after my house for me when I'm not there. Former chair of the he, PGA he said, of South Africa as well. Yes, he was. Absolutely. He knows everybody. And I, uh, after my illness, trying to recover from cancer, I'd lost two stone. I was in a mess. I was really struggling. And it's going to take a, quite a long time to get well and get my strength back. I mean, two stone's a lot to lose, let me tell you. you know. Yep. And I actually went for my first holiday to Sun City. Ricky Roberts is a big friend of mine. That's Ernie Els's caddy. Yeah, he's been years. on the podcast here, yeah. Yeah, I, I listen to it. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I used to know him, his family, his mum and dad, and see them. They had a house and a business in Joburg. So I've had a lot of time there in Joburg, just holidaying, practicing. And when I went to recuperate for a few weeks in Sun City, in April 2003, Ricky fixed it up for me. And uh, at that time, when I contacted Graham Webster, he said that there's going to be a golf course at what is now Pearl Valley. And it's going to be good because Jack Nicholas is doing it and everything. And uh, the course wasn't finished. It had been laid out. And he sent me pictures to Sun City of this uh, well, it was all mud and soil. There was no yeah. grass growing. This is going to be good. And so I sent for the plans. And they just started selling plots. And I bought one off, <laughs> off a piece of paper, a plan. <laughs> and uh, that's how it started. I bought it while I was at Sun City in about April 2003 and uh, built a house there. And I've never regretted it. I built it on the 16th green. We knew what we wanted. We overlooked the hole. The hole comes down to the green in front of our house. 
And we, I sit on the balcony, I watch the golfers, I have my lunch up there, and I play golf as well. Well, it's a, beauti- um, it's a beautiful, old- beautiful home. And it's on one of the... T- I think, is that stroke three on the course? It's tough. Be too tough for you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what about you, Sir Jeffrey? How do you go around Pearl Valley? Uh, well, I've been for an hour while with this lockdown and everything and a mess, but I had a handicap of 10 when I was playing, I think 10.3. But that's tough, but yeah. Graham says... You're not supposed to play to your handicap every time. It's something you've got to aspire to achieve sometimes, not every time. It's So it's probably round about 10 or 12, or it was when I played. I've played now for a year. Yeah. And uh, it was 10 or 12, and I could play around that. Occasionally, I'd be less. And when you have a bad day, you'd be above it, weren't you? So it's not unreasonable. I have a handicap similar to that in England, and... Um, Terrific golf course here. It's got three nines, very unique. Yeah. So it's quite special. More Allerton. It's, it's next to Moortown, within a mile of each other, a mile and a half. Moortown was the first course where the Ryder Cup was played in England. Okay. The first Ryder Cup was in America, and the first one in England was played in Yorkshire at Moortown. And apparently... I've been joined uh, since I came to live here at Boston Spa Weather, but I've been here, what, eight, nine years. I'm a member there at Moralton. And originally, it was the Jewish club when people were ostracizing them, shall we say. It had its own course at Temple Newsham, a suburb of Leeds. And before me, they bought some land in the late 60s, Blackamoor Farm it was, and asked a famous designer to come and design and he's designed three nines you start at the club hall, clubhouse and you come back to the clubhouse after each nine so each nine goes from the clubhouse and comes back it's brilliant because whenever there's a tournament on like golfers do other members who are not in the tournament can go and play you can go and play nine holes the other nine and usually the tournament's in the morning so by the time you finish nine you could probably play one of the other nines that's been finished. And it's great because it's quite rare to find courses where there's three nines. Robert Trent Jones was the designer. Mm. Yeah. They rang him up, would he come? And the first professional, 1970, I think, was Peter Alice. Okay. Peter Alice was pro there for three, four years while he was dabbling with commentating. And then he left to go full-time into commentating. I've met Peter a number of times. He comes at the club, he's done about, he just died, unfortunately. We all yeah. pass away. But he used to come to the club and do, he's done three evenings, I think, of an evening with Peter Alice, raised funds for the club. About a year ago, they named a bridge. We have some water on the course and a bridge going over some water. They named it the Alice Bridge, just in recognition. He's just a great man he was. Absolutely fantastic guy. I think when he was born, he was Europe's heaviest baby. Really? Yeah. I know he was a damn good player. You just go look at his record. Yeah. He's won tournaments uh, around European countries, and that's why he could always um, he could always poke a little humour at himself in his stories. He had a Rolls Royce he had for years, and it had put three 
wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> um, Put three. The bane of all of yeah. all professional golfers. We can all relate. All golfers, yeah. Uh, Jeffy, yeah. uh, can we uh, let, let's just go back now and, and, and chart your your history or your introduction to the game of golf? Uh, when did you first uh, when were you first introduced to the game and by who? And was there is there a particular story behind it? Well, you have to remember it's very difficult South Africa, lots of sunshine and all that to comprehend. You might have seen on television Coronation Street with the rows of houses. Yeah, Cory here. Yeah. I grew up when I grew up. I was born in 1940, so when I was about 10, 1950. My father was a local miner. You had these terrace houses that were built near the mine so miners could walk to work. And remember, nobody had cars, very few cars around. And we, we used to play cricket and football in the streets or a spare bit of land. Nobody played golf. Golf was an elite game in the 50s. You needed quite a bit of money to buy clubs, which are expensive, quite a lot more money to become a member of a golf course, and... How the hell are you going to get to a golf course when you live in a mining community? And golf courses then, there have been more built since, but then we usually in leafy areas a few miles away. So it would be local transport. Nobody had a car. I think in my village of a few thousand, or mining community, a few thousand people, I think I remember only three cars. There was the doctor had one, there was the news agent, and the grocer. <laughs> I don't think anybody else had a car. That's 4,000 people, maybe. Yeah. So everything was walking. So golf was as wonderful a game I found it is, and so many millions of people have. It just was not for the masses. And so I never played golf, and I played cricket and soccer, soccer for Leeds United under 18, Yorkshire trying to make me way. And it was when I got into the Yorkshire team, 1962, and then 63, I played most of the year. I was 22. But Yorkshire only employed you for six months. That's 1st of April to the end of September. They saved money and national insurance stamps by only paying you for six months. <laughs> so I had to find a job that winter. Yeah. And a friend got me a temporary job for the winter with the Yorkshire Electricity Board in Wakefield. And when I got working with a the boy there, who became a friend of mine for many years, he said, why don't you come and play golf? <laughs> I said, I have no clubs or anything. And Sunday morning, how the hell am I going to get to, from where I lived at Fitzwilliam to Wakefield, eight mile away, on an early Sunday morning to play golf? You're mad. I got my, <laughs> my auntie and my uncle. My uncle had retired as a deputy down the mines, and he got a small car. And with my auntie, he used to go to Bridlington, Scarborough, on the coast for a trip out. He's retired. And they said they'd pick me up and drop me off in Wakefield at the golf course. So that solved that problem. These lads then looked in the local paper and got me to buy a set of irons, second-hand Spalding irons for 20 quid. <laughs> it sounds ludicrous now. <laughs> I mean, you can't get a dozen ball golf balls no, for 20, you can't for 20, 20 quid. quid was quite a bit of money. So I had this little bag to carry and irons and I got to the golf course low legs in, Lee, in Wakefield I can remember it and me auntie and uncle went off to the coast and when I'd finished the golf they taught me how to grip the club and this and that various basics and we had a laugh and I used to turn up some winters winters mornings Sunday mornings my uncle and auntie would take me there and drop me off and it was snowing 
Oh. There was light snow all over the course. But for us, it's one of our only two days off from work. We tried to play golf in the snow. Can you believe it? We tried three or four holes, hitting the ball down a white ball, down a white fairway, <laughs> onto a white green. And I mean, we just... You give up after four holes and laugh. I mean, it's just just a joke. And they would take me home. So that's how I got to start with golf. A little bit like that. There's no way I could play in the summer. It's difficult, as again, for people today, youngsters in England, never mind in South Africa, to understand that when I then went on to play for Yorkshire regularly and England, we played two three-day matches a week. Two three-day. You only had Sunday off. And then we played a benefit match for one of the players who was having a benefit, start at two o'clock. So half a day, you went to, you only got the morning off, you went to virtually work half a day. And then in 1969, we played seven days a week because Sunday league started at 40 over cricket. Yeah. So we had two three-day matches starting at half 11 till half six. And then we had Sunday league starting at two o'clock till half past six. Seven days a week. No days. So golf, now. I started to play a little September when the season finished, mid-September. I started to just play a little for a few weeks, maybe go three times a week for a month as recuperation, rest. I mean, look, we had no money to go on holidays. You know, like I go now to South Africa. I mean, plane travel was in its infancy anyhow, was very costly. So your rest and recuperation was play a little golf. And then I had to start training and practicing, ready to go on tour with England because I went on tour most winters. Mm. And I got into it a little bit like that. I never really, I never really got to understand it. I could stand on a tee with a four iron and smack the ball down there, best part of, I don't know, 180 to 200 yards. Yeah, as a cricketer, you had ball sense. Yeah. And you just swing the club. I could close my eyes and hit a ball on the tee. It's easy. Where it goes is different. <laughs> <laughs> That's the technique of golf. <laughs> and But if I just swung, hit it like a cricket bat, it would go 180, 200 yards with a slight fade or a cut. So I played left to right and I could play an odd charity game for a, a benefit at golf match for a player or two and that's how I played for years just one or two bits and bobs like that and I never really learned much about the game uh, or the technique or to swing properly because if you think about it cricket and golf are totally dissimilar golf you swing around your body turn your hip everything you swing right around cricket we don't do that we don't turn our shoulders or anything we pick the bat up slightly towards first to second slip which is a perfect cut we pick it up there, it slightly loops at the top and then comes down straight to play with the, with the left shoulder, left elbow up and play straight. You swing around the body. And so it is totally opposite. The only time I learned about how to swing a golf club properly is when I finished. When I finished cricket, I was 46, 1986. I wrote my autobiography and did the selling of it, the book signings, and by about when I'm 48, I started to, well, I wasn't doing anything. <laughs> I had no job or anything, and I'm just, I had a few games of golf with friends. And I turned up 
to play at Sandmore Golf Club in Leeds. Lovely little course. And the pro recognised me. Remember, I've only just finished from Yorkshire. Yeah. John and this and that. Jeffrey Hour, this and that. And I said, do you do any lessons? Because I'd started going for a lesson or two with different people. As I know from cricket, it's very important that when somebody's teaching you cricket, football, anything, that you, the person, have a coach who you gel with. It doesn't mean the coach is bad or not good. It, you just have to gel with him. You're on the same wavelength. I say to people, listen, I could teach you cricket, but it's not, I know a lot about batting, but my style, my way might not gel with you. That doesn't make me a bad coach. doesn't make you a bad pupil. It just means we don't gel. So I said to this job, and do any lessons? He said, yeah, why? What do you want? I said, well, I'm just trying to learn how to play a bit. I play off 16, 17. Obviously, there's about six holes on the course with a four iron. I can't reach in two, can I? It doesn't matter if I play best shots in the world. I can't reach them. Yep. So my handicap's always going to be high, isn't it? He said, oh, you want my assistant? I said, really? I thought that's odd because... A pro usually gets a salary from the club and then he makes a bit of yeah. extra jam, jam on the bread by come, doing teaching. Come on, it? mate, and, and some corn. And so he says, you want my assistant, Dennis Sheehy? I said, who's he? He said, well, young lad, plays scratch, played a bit, tried his hand on the tour. He's been to see Ledbetter in America. Oh. oh yeah. Apparently, the members at Sanmore had paid his airfare. Ledbetter was at a municipal course and Dennis had helped him collecting balls and everything, and Ledbetter let him stay with him and giving him free lessons. And so he come back with the Ledbetter way of playing. Yeah. So I book a lesson. I go on the range. He says, go and hit a few balls. So I hit a few balls. I said, what do you think? He says, well, what you've got is garbage. <laughs> That's rubbish. <laughs> I said, is that the same as rubbish? <laughs> he said, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I said, right. I said, um, that sort of thing. I said, he said, well, what do you want? What do you want to achieve from your goal? What do you want? I said, well, I'm 48. I'm too old to be, you know, like, but it'd be nice to play, say, single figures, maybe nine, and play to it because wherever I go, because of my status as a former cricketer, people know about me. I was good at that. I'm not going to be good at golf, but they look at you thinking you should be, and I'm not. <laughs> and he said, right. He said, that's not a problem. I said, he's serious. He said, yeah, yeah, that's that's not a problem. Now, if you want to get to low single figures, then that is different. You're going to have to work really hard every day. I said, no, no, nine would be good. I could play with people, not embarrass myself. I said, I'm not bothered about people looking at me. I'm used to that. I can handle that. I've got concentration, patience, a steely mind. I've had people talk to me when I'm batting and everything. It makes it goes in one ear out the other. Let me tell you, it's a waste of time. <laughs> Even now, I can play golf. You can make a noise. You can shuffle about in my eye line. It doesn't stop me. It doesn't bother me. I just swing. I don't blame anybody. It's me hitting the ball. I can get focused in that bubble and just understand or maybe aware of what's people around me, but it doesn't affect me. It's a gift. I've had that since I was a kid. And if you were trying to upset me when I'm batting by trying to sledge me or talk to me, you're wasting your breath. <laughs> I've had some of the best fast bowlers in the world, let me tell you. They even, even bothered after trying it once. They're wasting their energy. So 
he helped me. He helped me short game and everything. We got down to the irons. I would expect up to a four iron to hit the green nearly every time. I would. My short game was good. Um, I, I went with him. I could only go certain times. Like it, I started commentating that I could go in between test matches for a lesson. And we'd stay and I'd chip and put. And then when he got a minute or two, he'd come in the lesson. We'd go and have a sandwich or something for lunch. Been to my house and what have you. Became really good friends. And he got me playing to, oh, really fantastic. I never got to the driver. I used to play a three-wood with a cut. We hadn't got to that either. Why did he keep you off the driver? Well, no, we just didn't get to it. We worked so hard on the putting, the chipping. Bunkers, I fancied bunkers like anything for a, you know, just ordinary guy because he he taught me the right way, what the club does, how it bounces, and so forth. And he was he was tough, but a good friend. And uh, uh, he he actually left Leeds. Well, there was then a, a Ledbetter Academy at Leeds, and he went to run that. And then Ledbetter had him down to Chart Hills in Kent, where there was a Faldo course. Faldo had designed it. There was a Ledbetter Academy there, and Dennis went down to to sort of do the teaching there. But that was a long way from Leeds. And, and eventually, he got offered a job in San Diego, and he's been there for donkey's years and earning a lot more money and so forth, better climate. But for about four or five years or more, maybe a bit more, I saw him. He got me so good. Remember, I only played occasionally because I'm commentating cricket. I'm away all winter. I mean, one winter, I went to New Zealand commentating and writing. And you know how you you sit and turn in the Ledbetter way? You have to keep your right knee in the same position, slightly bent, as you are over the ball. Yeah. And he had me, he had made a leather knee guard that I had to put on, strap it on, tie it, and go play golf on practice as well in New Zealand, get a boogie, and I want you to play with this. You're not in a tournament, so it doesn't matter. You're playing with friends or what have you. And it made me sit and turn with this knee bent. And it worked. It was brilliant. He got me playing so so well. I got invited in 92 to a tournament at Wentworth. The best I've ever played in my life. I'm going to Wentworth to play a two-day tournament by Pringle. You know the sweaters yeah, that yeah, Nick yeah. Faldo used to have? Yeah, yes. They must have had. So we've got uh, the footballers like Dalglees and Hanson. We've got Michael Parkinson, my friend, Jimmy Tarbuck, all kinds of people, good golfers. I mean, Tarby played off low single figures. Hanson did. Anyhow, i got to play. And he comes from Kent to give me lessons that afternoon. So I drive to London, Wentworth. He comes from Kent. We spend the afternoon. He's giving me chipping, putting, all through everything. And we have some food. Then he drives back to Kent. Next day, I go round Wentworth in three over. Wow. And when I ring him up that night, he said, how did you do? I said, I think I did all right. I said, that's three over. He says, was that for the first time? I said, no. <laughs> Cheeky oh. bugger. <laughs> and... And I, I played with uh, David Lloyd. You know him with his old tennis and running. I played with David Lloyd. And the next day I played with, have you heard of the comedian Jasper Carrot? Oh, yes, yes. And I played with them. And I won the tournament by 12 shots. 
With a oh. screaming ringer. Yeah, they must ringer. have loved you. It was unbelievable. I had I went up to the the caddy master, good big courses, went was into huge, you know, got everything and and he knew me obviously. And I, I said, listen, I've only played here once before with Michael Parkinson, my friend. My friend, you know, we used to play cricket at Barnsley together. Parky. And Dickie Bird. Yeah, Michael Parkinson, Dickie Bird and I were all Barnsley Cricket Club, Barnsley. And I said to he says, I need a caddy, somebody good. He said, I'll find you a lad. I know what to get. And he got this lad who was 20-odd. He plays off one or scratch. So we go to the range on the morning of the tournament and hit a few balls, let him see. And he was brilliant. We go to it. I said, what, where I hit this? Six iron? Mm, took a five iron. Hit it solid. And hit it right edge of the green. I said, really? Yeah, trust me. And he just hit it there and it finished up near the flag. <laughs> and he just, and he read the putts for me. Oh, is that on the right? Two balls? Mm, no, a bit more than that, Jeffrey. I said, really? Oh, yeah, here, look. And he point where and be firm. Went in the hole, didn't it? <laughs> I thought it was great. It was like, it was magic playing with him. No, we won it easy. Your career as a cricketer, ran parallel to a, a very exciting time, I think, for, for the game of golf. Nicholas was in his ascendancy. I think in 1964, the year you made your debut for England, Nicholas was the leading money winner on the PGA Tour. He won $113,285. How did that compare to what you were making at the time? It's about $100,000 more than me. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a good one. I played... I think we got £100 for the week, the first test match I played, 64. We got £100. We played five tests and no guarantee you're going to get picked either. There's just five tests, no one day is or anything. So I broke a finger the first test, so I played four that year. I got £400. Uh, my salary with Yorkshire was about £700 and £800 and I got up £700 or £800 in match fees. I know that's true because I've written it before. So add it up, that's what I earned. It went on a winter tour, you got a couple of thousand pounds. And we get to 1977 when I got my 100th 100 at Headingley and come back after three years out. The salary was £400 for the week in 1977. Was that a lot of money back then? I know. No, 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 no. In fact, there was a guy in near London in Hertfordshire called David Evans. I've met him a couple of times. In that year, 77, Packer was signing people up. Quite a number of players from England side. Tony Gregg, Derek Underwood, Alan Knott, John Snow, Bob Woolmer, Dennis Amis. People had signed. So it was decimating the England team. The fourth test at Headingley that I got my 100th 100, and by the fifth test, the Oval, he came in this David Evans out of nowhere, because you can imagine the the sort of furor and media noise about it. Oh, it was tremendous at the time. And he came in with some friends, and to help the rest of us not sign for Packer, if anybody was thinking of it, Yeah that he came in with his friends and said they'd pay from £400 what the cricket board paid, they'd pay us another £600 each 
So our wage will be a thousand pounds for the test match. So for two tests, we got a thousand pounds because him and his mates paid us an extra six hundred pounds each, and that embarrassed the English cricket board, as it is now. For the following year, they officially paid us a thousand pounds for a test match. Now, uh, Jeffrey, uh, Simon mentioned uh, Jack Nicholas uh, in his ascendancy in the sixties. Um, were, were you someone that, uh, as a cricketer, followed what was happening in, in, in the game of golf? And, and are you today a golf watcher? And do you are you up to date with what's happening in the world of golf? Yes, I watch the golf. Uh, no, I've Italy, but I watch all sports. But I do watch the golf. I've met Nicholas. I met him at uh, Wimbledon three, four years ago. He came. He was he sat on the front row with the chairman in the royal box. I think I was on the second or third row and the chairman introduced us and I was telling him about my house and on the 16th at Pearl Valley, which is, he designed the course. Then he remembered. No, no, he did. He said it goes slightly left to right, doesn't it? I said, yeah, I said, it's a great hole. It's a great hole. It doesn't look too tough, but it catches a lot of people out. And we were chatting about it. And uh, no, I watched him. I, I'm, I'm always interested in all great players in most sports, I'm interested in their thinking in the way because you can have the best technique in the world, but the most important thing is your mind, is your head, is what you think about, how you play, how you think through situations. And his quote is right when he was asked, wasn't he, which is his favourite club? And he pointed to his head, his brain. It's what you think, right? That's why Faldo was very good. He wasn't a genius, Faldo, like certain golfers, but he was he got such a great technique and a great mind. When you play golf, it's like playing cricket. There's a lot of similarities with all sports. There are times to defend and be careful, not gung-ho. There are other times to attack the flag and try for, for them, anyhow, birdies and eagles. Medalfers today, they think they're so good, they attack the flag every hole. To me and to Nicholas, I've read a lot about him. That's not smart. I mean, his comment is right, and it's the same at Cricky. When he say, you can't win the tournament the first day, but you sure as hell can lose it by making a big total. And it's the same at Cricky. You can win the toss on a pitch which is going to turn later. You've got the opportunity to win the match. England have had that twice in India. Big turning pitchers won the toss. And what did they do? They screwed up because they battered rubbish. You bat rubbish, you have an opportunity. You bat well, you control the game. And you can lose it on the first day by being stupid. And it's your mind that tells you when to attack, when to defend, when to be careful, when to get out of here. Wait, what is, what's that famous one about Ben Hogan, the other one of the other four great golfers ever? Tiger Woods, Nicholas, Ben Hogan and Bobby Jones is Ben Hogan's playing, I've forgotten the course now, and he's worked out two holes are very, very difficult. You get pars on four rounds at these holes, you're going to gain strokes on the field just by getting par, because a lot of people are going to fail there. And he sends his caddy down to the green. He says, I'm going to hit three balls from the fairway. I want to know exactly where they pitch, and I want to know in the order, one, two, and three. And he hits three different shots, thinking of the wind and what have you, different. And he worked on these two holes, how he's going to play them. 
in the different situations and circumstances of each day, he wins the tournament. Not by getting birdies, eagles like the players today. So many are always thinking birdie, eagles. What is the point of getting four birdies and six bogeys? Yeah, you might as well get two birdies and no bogeys. You're still better off. Sure, same Listen. thing. And same in my game. You see people make wonderful twenties and thirties. Oh, what a shot that was! Do the covers? Oh, he's up to for six, and I go, yeah, and he gets out. But he makes no impact on the game. 20s and 30s do not win cricket matches. Hundreds, 130s do. They hold the team together. People can play at the other end easier because you're solidifying your end, making runs. That wins games. And it's the thinking of the mind. I'm always interested in how people think. Rory today, I love Rory. We watched on our balcony when we had the South African Open at Pearl Valley, three years running. You'll remember, was it yeah. seven, eight, nine, something? I, I think, I stand corrected, but I think that was his first tournament as a professional. And my wife, as soon as she saw him, she said, that kid is going to be a star. And so we've always watched him and loved him. Never met him. She put a little banner on our balcony. Go, Rory, for this young kid. And as you're coming down the fairway, you're bound to see our house. You can't avoid it. It's right there behind the green. And we thought we saw him smart when he's done it. And uh, so we followed him. Rory now cannot go four rounds without making loads of bogeys. He cannot go around. He makes wonderful eagles and birdies and fantastic shots still. He's got talent. Oh, he's probably more talent than any golfer playing the game. At the minute, at this minute, probably got more talent. His swing is fantastic. But he makes bogeys. He makes errors. Some of them, many of them are mental errors. Nothing to do with his swing. And you'll see he'll do 66 and then 76 and 75 and 74 and he doesn't win the tournament. He's been doing that all year. Did that last year too. Mm. So cricket like that for me is, I'm interested in how people think. Thinking is so important, making the right choice, the right decision. Mm. Uh, toward the end of last year, uh, there was a major auction of some of your old cricketing memorabilia, including your your hundredth hundredth bat that you spoke about, the shirt yeah. Michael Holding wore when he dismissed you from yeah. the duck at Bridgetown in '81, and and your old golf shoes. Now, out of all those items, which one fetched the most? Please tell me it was the shoes. Oh. Now the hundred hundred bat, <laughs> <laughs> forty thousand pound. Wow. Well, there's only one of them. Yep. And if you're a real collector, that was unique. Um, look, I, I didn't want to get rid of anything. I got blazers. I got about 20-odd bats. I got cricket stumps from great matches. Had them engraved and everything. I got caps. Uh, Greg Chappells, Viv Richards. Cap went for about six, £8,000 or something. And Greg Chappells. They were swapped mine for theirs and so forth. I didn't want to get rid of anything. But I, when I go and look, sadly we all go, I'm 80. So although I'm fit and healthy and well, I ain't going to live too much longer, sadly. Just nature of life, isn't it? Yeah. And I, my wife, I said to her and my daughter, what, what do you want to do with all this? Because we... Um, We've only been here about eight, nine years. Before that, I lived in Jersey. I left my house when I had cancer because I'm into Chinese feng shui. 
and the man said it had lost its energy. Beautiful old farmhouse it was. So you really should move because I five years to get a clear could come back in those five years, the cancer. So we went to Jersey for a while, but everything was boxed up. My souvenirs, memorabilia, everything. It went to the Jersey house. Then we came back to Yorkshire. It's still boxed up in rooms upstairs. I tried to say to my wife, what do you want to do with this? What do you want? Well, we can't keep all that. And the daughter said, I can't keep all that, Daddy. I've got a youngster. I've got to have another. I've got a husband. I've got a house. I've got a business. She has a wedding dress shop. <laughs> I need a huge room to put all these blazers and bats and stumps in. And I joked with my wife. I said, listen, what we should do is put me in a big room because I've got a big mansion here, about 38 rooms. It's a gorgeous house. What? And we live in, yeah, we live in part of it. Go on rooms. the internet. What? Go and look on the internet. At least go and look on the internet. It's, it's about 170 years old. It's stunning. You got right a, in the village. You've got a cricket net in one of those rooms. No, I've got a golf net. Oh, okay. All right. Even <laughs> good, better. Good, good. And a bit of astroturf for putting and chipping off. But... I said, what we should do is put them all in some of these rooms and in the summer, we should charge people to come and look round and we'll serve English tea and cakes. <laughs> <laughs> the wife says, no, we won't. <laughs> no. So I said, I said what, what the hell are we going to do with it all then? Because, you know, and it was them that said, look, I think my daughter picked oh, about five or six pieces she wants to keep. And... Um, or a son and what have you. Uh, and they just said, look, sell it. So we looked around and it was a friend who knew the head man at Christie's, the famous oxen house. He said, I said, they're not going to want my memorabilia. The, the, the main guy is the auctioneer as well. He sells paintings worth 50, 80, 100 million. I said, I'm a cricketer. My stuff isn't anything like that. But he said, yes. He said, I'm a cricket fan. I want to do it. I said, he's serious. Yep. So he sent his team up. He actually came himself. He cancelled a meeting in New York to come. He wanted to meet me. They had a chat. I sent them upstairs where all these boxes are. I said, look, look at it. Most of them are not being opened. There you are. Open them up. See what you want. And then they came up another two or three times and started to look at stuff, catalogue it, photograph it, and uh, they picked about 130 pieces. I said, look, are you sure you don't want this? They said, no, we're fine. They picked everything. I had no say in anything. I left them to it. I've got a few things left still. and But they went. And look, I've always been a believer. It's their forte. That's what they do. So I don't think it's sensible for me to be telling them which bits of my memorabilia they should put for auction. So I left it to them. And it went. Nearly all of it went. There were only a few items didn't go. Amazing. Now, now Jeffrey, you've played in uh, many corporate golf days and in many rounds of golf over the years. Who would you say your favourite golf partners are and why? Oh, my wife. Definitely. I play with her at Pearl Valley a lot and she wins most of them. <laughs> but you just let her... No, I won't swear. I bloody well not. <laughs> I tell you. She has a handicap. She, she come to it very late and she doesn't hit it a long way, but she hits it straight. She doesn't lose a ball. She doesn't get in any trouble much. And she plays around about 23. 
and she plays roundabout. Now, that's very decent. That's very decent. And I play off 10. Now, as you know, you can't afford to be double bogeyed and hitting one in the bushes or in the water at Pearl Valley. There's quite a bit of water because you lose two shots off 10. Mm, That's a lot. So it's, it's not easy to beat her. No, I like playing... With her and my daughter. My daughter plays left-handed and she hits it miles. And so, Jeffrey, I mean, you would have played golf with many, many people over over the years, but the most famous person you've ever played around with? The most famous person? I once played with Ted Dexter in 65-6. We were in Australia. And we didn't play Sundays then. So they fixed up a golf day at Cotterslow. And there's wind comes there. And we play in the press, good relations. And all the press are there, they're playing us. I'm the least best golfer of 16. And I play with Ted Dexter, who is scratch. Proper scratch, let me tell you. And we played as a combination. And uh, he was brilliant to play with. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, I remember him playing with Gary Player when he pumped. 1964 in South Africa. We stayed at the, was it the Windsor Hotel, the old Windsor in Joburg. And he came to Gary to take Barrington, Titmus and Dexter for golf. And when they came back, they had tea at the hotel. And I was there, I was able to have tea with them. And he said he's proper amateur golfer. He's the best he's played with. I don't mean these young kids who play golf every day as amateurs, but they're looking to be pros. These is a proper amateur. Because remember, Ted could only play occasionally. He's playing cricket for England. He's got matches to play. You just get an odd day off. But he was a Cambridge blue at cricket, Cambridge blue at golf. He'd won the president's putter. It's for amateurs. And he was just, he hit it. Unbelievable. And... Playing with him was a, just a delight, absolute delight. And every time he helped me, somebody off 16, you know, he, where to put and where to hit it, it just makes you play better. And he just, he had so much fun at laughing at Michael Melford of the Times and uh, John Woodcock, the famous writer. And uh, was it Telegraph and Towns there were? And they kept saying to me, Jeffrey, what is your handicap again? And Ted just laughed. He thought it was hilarious because it just made me play better. And it's fun, you know. Look, it's like all of us. As soon as we play well at golf, we love it. Who, who the hell likes to play golf when they're playing badly? You've <laughs> got to be an idiot. <laughs> we like to play well, don't we? It's fun then. Wow. You know, when I've been around Pearl Valley just occasionally and played to seven, I think, wow, fantastic, you know. Uh, and you just get a glimpse of what it must be like for a pro who's expected to do par, but does five, six under. He's thrilled the bits when he comes off, when he's interviewed. That's why we play sport, to enjoy it, don't we, to play well. We accept the bad days. It's character building, it's part of sport. But, hey, we all like to play well. So so you mentioned Pearl Valley, Jeffrey. Uh, What are some of the other favourite golf courses of yours around the world? Well, I thought you might ask me, and it's pretty easy. I played at a place called Cowrie Cliffs on the Bay of Islands in New Zealand. That's North Island where Auckland is, but right up to the tip, the Bay of Islands. And there's a golf course there, of course, you're on a lake to stay there. And, and it's 
Cowrie Cliffs, and it's absolutely stunning. Stunning. It was built by Tom Doak. I'd never heard of him. And almost every tee, most greens, you're right, you could see the sea. You stand there, and the beauty of it, not just the beauty, there's a lot of courses with beauty, but there's hardly anybody on the course. They let only so many paying customers every day, just very handful, come in and play. It's for people. They had, when I played there, spent a couple of nights with my wife, They, you have these Gorgeous houses, chalets, call them what you want. They've got everything you want to mention in them, from coffee machines to anything. They're spacious, luxurious, and there's 25 on them. There's one huge house that I didn't go in, but was more than arm and a leg. Bill Gates was there just before I was with his family for Christmas one time. I think he can afford it. He can probably <laughs> buy the golf course 10 times over. Yeah, I think he's all right. And yeah, I think he's all right. But this course, and it's the nature place, you can go for walks, it's this golf course. So you've got 50 people there and just a handful of people allowed to come in and pay to play. So there's virtually nobody on the course and you've got this immaculate golf course with stunning views over the water and it's nice weather because it's north of Auckland, which gets the best weather in South Africa. It's nearly always sunny. And there's summer. It's even more sunny further north, by the way. And it's just gorgeous. Um, it is lovely. It is. Uh, there's another one I played. The Hills. Have you heard of Queenstown in South Island of New Zealand? We have, yes. Yeah. Right. Well, there was a guy there many, quite a few years ago called Michael Hill. And he owned all this land of jewelers. He's got jewelers shops in Australia and New Zealand. Michael Hill. I never met him. His friends said, listen, all this land is going to waste. You're not doing it. Why don't you build a few golf holes? All right, he got a bit of money, and so he built, I don't know, half a dozen holes. Then when he got them built, I said, look, you have to build a few more and make it nine. So it's a, you know, you've got to have a nine so we can go around twice and play. And then they talked him into building an 18 old golf course. And finally, when I get there, I think he's got about 19 members only. And impossible to get on, but you know what it is. You talk to a few people. And I had one of the best days of my life. I had my wife with me. I had my daughter and a boyfriend, now a husband. We're on holiday. And we get to on to play the hills. There's hardly anybody on the course. It's lovely, beautiful course. And I've been trying to fly by helicopter to Milford Sound, if you've heard of it. It's a five, six hours by windy small roads and five or six hours back. I said, no, no, not doing that. I've been trying to get a helicopter takers, but the weather's been so bad down there. It's right near the sea, this big inland water with hills around and everything. So anyhow, I get a call this morning, we're going to golf. We're free to go, Mr. Boycott. We can go with the helicopter and this and that. I said, I can't. No, no. I've got on this golf course. This has been difficult to achieve. Finally got it. We're going to play golf. So we play golf at the hills. There's hardly, I can't see anybody on the course. We just have it all to ourselves. We come in. We have a quick sandwich and drink. The helicopter lands at the golf course, picks us all up in our golf stuff. They take our golf clubs by car back to the hotel. 
and this helicopter picks it up and takes us up and it goes and lands on a glacier right on top of mountains. And I've got pictures of my daughter and her fella using a bit of matting, a bit of plastic matting and sliding down this glacier about 15, 20 yards into the water at the bottom, which is blue, but it's frozen over. And with the minerals in the rocks, it's blue and sliding down and wonderful, just views up there. And then we took off, we got a Milford Sound, go all around it, come back, drops us at our hotel, which has a golf or golf course with it. And we go and get showered and go to dinner. What a wonderful day. Gee, amazing. 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 I've got pictures in this helicopter. God, it was terrifying. I'm in the <laughs> front seat with this lady this lady pilot, and I feel as if I can touch the mountain about seven, eight yards out of the window. God in heaven. I said, you're flying by GPS, are you? <laughs> yeah, she said, Jeffrey. Good. Thank God for that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> So, Jeffrey, as we wrap up this chat, I have to ask you, uh, your most memorable moment on a golf course, have you heard a hole-in-one? No. No, I haven't. You've been close? Oh, I have. What am I talking about? You stupid man, Jeffrey. <laughs> I have. You tend to remember those. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm in Australia. And I'm playing on this golf course, which was uh, down on the point outside Melbourne. And it's been, um, it's been designed by the great Australian golfer who won five Opens. And, uh, Peter Thompson. Peter Thompson. In fact, I'm looking in the pro shop before, a day before we've arrived to play on the uh, peninsula. And this little fella comes up to me, introduces himself, Peter Thompson. I said, I know who you are, one of the greatest golfers ever. I've met him before, but you know, you don't see somebody like that for years. Like Gary Player, I see him once every five years if I'm lucky. And he introduced himself, we chatted, and we play his course the next day. He's got two. He said, which course you play? And I said, so-and-so, the best one. And oh, he said, it's tough. Don't, don't go off the more difficulties. It's tough enough, Jeffrey. And then he's got another course, which is a bit easier. We played that the next day. So we're playing round there. And uh, we get to the nearly end of the round, this par three. And I'm playing with Dean Jones, who just died, the Australian yeah. cricketer, right? I've been friends with him donkey's years. And he was a very good player, very low single figures. And we get on there, I said, right, I've seen you for a while. My golf, what do you think? How can I improve? He said, well, okay, I'll, we'll talk when we get into the club. I said, what I'll do, I'll just, I'll just take a picture on my phone of your swing on this hole. And then we'll talk when we get in the clubhouse. I said, oh, right. So he starts taking a picture on his phone. And I hit this seven iron to what is the, I think it's the biggest green, three-tiered in the Southern Hemisphere. And I hit it to the middle tier and it starts to come back. As it starts to come back and he's filming me, he said, that could be in the hole, Jeffrey. I said, really? I bet that is in the hole. And it went straight down the hole and he's got it on film. <laughs> unbelievable, eh? <laughs> yeah, well, it's more unbelievable, unbelievable that you didn't remember it. No, i just forgotten for a minute. What a dozy <laughs> minute that was. And, and yeah, and Dino's got it. And then we go to the clubhouse and 
have to buy rounds for everybody, but there's nobody course, there. Yes, yeah. All those with the last ones in. Ah, cheapest <laughs> round. Good for a Yo, Yorkshireman I getting a hundred one. We're having wine there, and you know, drinking and chatting, and yeah, I loved him. He was a good man. He was a top man. He was really. I loved him. Yeah, he was great. He great fun. So yes, I have done it once. My God, I've forgotten that. <laughs> Sir Jeffrey Boycott. Thank you very much for your time and for taking us through your journey and your, your relationship with the game of golf. Much appreciated. You know, it's the only game where the worse you play, the more shots you get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the ball's not even moving. Yeah. I mean, most of the games, we're all, we're all trying to score runs more and more. That's not the worse you play, the more hits you get. That's why everybody wants to play. Yeah, it is an amazing game. So, Jeffrey Boycott, thank you very much. We really do appreciate your time on the podcast today. Take care. Love you. Bye now. Bye. There it is. A win for the ages. The long and short of it. Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and Dale Hayes. Thanks for listening. We'd ask our friends, except we don't have any. So please like and rate this podcast. Until next time.